indeed, that is such a sweet song, sweet reminders of the presence of the Lord. But we need to remember that as we pray that request, Lord, abide with me, that is not a prayer that we need to have any doubt or any question what the answer is. We know that the Lord indeed does abide with us. The very last words of the Gospel of Matthew say, For behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is indeed with his people. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so we sing these songs, Abide with me, to even remind our own hearts in the midst of a prayer that we would seek the Lord, that we would abide with him, and that we would desire him above all else in cloud or in sunshine. And it so happens that as Jesus promises to be with us to the end of the age, our topic this morning has to do with the end of the age. And so as we approach God's word, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you have spoken clearly and truthfully. I thank you that we can trust what you have said and trust what has been written. And I pray now that you would give us insight that we might understand what our Savior has left for us in this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the most compelling elements of a Christian worldview is that Christianity teaches that there is purpose in the universe. There is purpose for humanity. In particular, there is purpose for your life. We are not biological accidents. We are not the result of time and chance. We are the result of the handiwork of a creator and he created us for a purpose and therefore every individual life has a reason for existence. It's not simply just for survival. It's not simply just we exist in order to exist, in order to reproduce and then to die in some sort of simply biological purpose. But we've got a bigger and grander purpose that the Bible teaches. We were created to experience joy in the presence of our creator. We were created in order to enjoy fellowship with God, simply put. He wanted mankind to bear his image unlike any other creature that is upon the earth. All the animals were created by him, but mankind alone was created in his image so that they could be in fellowship with him and communicate and display and mirror somewhat of what God is like to the world. He set man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, our, the first humans. They were there to live on the earth in harmony with God who lived in heaven. They were to reign, as it were, in God's place. They were to have dominion over the earth in God's stead. They were his representatives upon the earth. But as his representatives, they failed in that duty. They sinned, and therefore they were cast out of the garden. They were exiled to the east, sent from God's presence. 
But praise the Lord, the Bible reveals that God had a plan to bring mankind back into paradise. To bring them back to where they could be upon the earth and be in communion and fellowship with God. His plan, as we now know, included his son being sent to the earth to take on human flesh and to live a perfect life in which he did not sin and then to die upon the cross in order to pay the penalty for sinful humanity. He would then be raised to new life. He would then ascend to heaven and await a time that he could return and set up his, set up his kingdom here upon this earth and rule on the earth in the stead or in the place of where mankind first failed. Adam failed to rule upon this earth in God's place and represent God truthfully and accurately. And the second Adam, Jesus, would succeed where the first Adam failed. This grand plan that we learn about God's plan for humanity is known as God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the time and place where man has been made right with God and God's chosen man rules upon this earth in righteousness and justice. It is literally heaven on earth, heaven brought to earth. And friends, this is what you and I were made for. Our purpose, our existence is made that we might one day inhabit such a kingdom, that we might inhabit such a place in which the things that we see and feel and touch will be all made right. And Christ will be upon his throne. And this earth will be a new heaven and new earth. And so currently we await the arrival of this kingdom. This earth is not yet fully perfected. All things have not been made new. But we wait for that day. We know who the rightful king is. We know what he will do when he arrives. But we live in the in-between of his two comings. For the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at this idea of the kingdom and the kingdom's arrival. We'll be studying Jesus' teaching in Luke 17 and 18 regarding the arrival of the kingdom. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, you can find that on page 1042 on the Pew Bible directly in front of you, if that would help you. This begins to pick up a theme that has already been talked about in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, this idea of the kingdom. Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been announcing his arrival and that Israel should, should submit and bow to him, that they should recognize that the king is in their midst. And yet they continue to refuse to do so. And so that has prompted Jesus to begin to teach and begin to prepare his disciples for what it will be like, how they should wait in the time that Jesus is no longer in their presence physically. And so we are going to be, like I said, the next three weeks, be looking at Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, all the way through Luke 18, verse 8. For our purposes this morning... I'm just going to read Luke 17, 20, 
all the way through the end of the chapter. And so I invite you to follow along as I read our passage this morning. Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Again, as I said, throughout this passage and even into the next section in chapter 18, Jesus is teaching on his second coming, on his return to earth. And so for our purposes here, our, this morning we will be looking at verses 20 through 25 and seeing how we are to wait for this kingdom with eyes set on Christ. We'll then look next week at verses 26 through 37 and how we are to wait with devotion to Christ. In the final sermon, we will look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and how we are to wait with prayer in Christ. But for this morning, we are going to look at verses 20 through 25, and look at how we are to wait with our eyes set on Christ. How we are to wait with our eyes set on Christ. And so as we look at these verses, verses 20 through 25, there is a, a focus that is upon the Lord himself, a focus on understanding who Jesus is and that you and I need to discern and understand him and can't lose sight of him and what he has done. And so as we look at this text this morning, we will be urged to set our eyes on Christ from four avenues so that we will eagerly await the arrival of his kingdom. And so the first avenue through which we'll be urged to set our eyes on Christ is first to learn from the Pharisees' blindness. We will first need to learn from the Pharisees' blindness in verses 20 and 21. Luke here gives us uh, little to no context in verse 20. Uh, what came in verse 19, as we were talking about last week, was the ending of the story of Jesus healing 10 lepers and one returns to thank Jesus for doing so. And then immediately on the heels of that, 
He says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom would come, it's just, there's no scene change. You don't know if they're right there, but this is what Luke includes for us. And he notes that the Pharisees are asking a question of when. When would the kingdom come? Now, at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, the relationship between the Pharisees and Jesus are pretty clearly, is cl- pretty clearly defined. Maybe at the beginning of his ministry, there were some question marks as to how would the Pharisees receive Jesus. But by this point, in which we are narrowing in on Jerusalem, the final months of Jesus' life, it's pretty well defined. They have repeatedly seen his miracle working power. They've repeatedly listened to his teaching, and yet they have repeatedly stiff-armed Jesus. They've continued to reject him. They've continued to disbelieve they would not follow him and, and believe in him. And so therefore, when we're, we see that he's asked a question by the Pharisees, we should not think that this is an innocent question. I believe that there is some animus in the question that they are asking here, that um, they weren't genu- genuinely curious. They had an angle that they were trying to bring. And I believe their angle was this. They're basically saying, Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And what are the signs of its arrival? And secretly, they're basically saying, you know, it, once we see that, then we'll believe in you. If we, if we can see that you're actually bringing about this great kingdom that you claim to be the king of, then we'll submit our life to you, then we'll believe, and then we'll follow along with you. But, you know, hey, so, so when's that kingdom that you claim to be bringing? When is that coming? What is that going to look like? Basically, if you don't show us what these things are and what it's going to look like, we're not going to believe. And so they're acting like their faith in Christ would appear if and when the, the signs of the kingdom were to show. But this is a farce. They are not interested in God's kingdom and they will not submit to Jesus as Lord. Since the start of Jesus' ministry, he has been proclaiming the message of the kingdom and declaring that he is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 4 verse 43 says, Jesus declares, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came proclaiming the message of the kingdom. The Matthew and Mark declare how Jesus, when he came on the scene, declared, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus performed many miracles in order to confirm that fact to those that were watching that he was indeed this messianic king. But you remember in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, the prophet sent before Jesus to announce to the nation that the Messiah was coming, he is now in prison. He's uh, no longer in the good graces of the local magistrate, and so he is in prison by King Herod, and he is now beginning to doubt. Okay, Jesus, I came telling Israel to be ready to accept you as the king. And you came and you began preaching, but um, I'm in chains. <laughs> uh, I'm in prison and I, I'm just wondering, is, is, are you really the guy? Did I get it right? A remarkable question of candor from such a great man as John the Baptist. Jesus answered John sent messengers to Jesus to ask this question, are you really the one? And he replied in Luke chapter 7, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered 
these messengers, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus is saying, if anyone has any doubt about who I am, they should simply look to the miracles that I have performed, in fact, the miracles that I just performed, and it should be obvious, it should be clear based upon what the Old Testament said, that I am the promised one. No one else can do what I do. These are the healings. This is, these are the miracles that would accompany the kingdom, as Isaiah prophesied. And therefore, the Pharisees who are asking this question here in Luke 17 should not need any more uh, signs about asking whether Jesus is truly the king or about the kingdom. Because in the person of Jesus, the kingdom was present and being offered to the nation. They should have seen it, should have seen him and believed him. Instead, they used another evasion technique and asked when the kingdom would come. This is classic. Unbelief continues to look for excuses searches for another way to evade the truth. Now, Jesus answers them by saying this. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. He says that the kingdom was not coming to these Pharisees in observable signs. For these men, they should not expect the great signs would appear in the sky, Something to happen with sun, moon, or stars. Now, the Old Testament had predicted that there would be grand signs that would come in the sky. And so, there is, could be a reasonable expectation of that. And we see, indeed, that that is uh, prophesied to happen, as the book of Revelation said, that there will be great cosmic signs that will accompany the return of Christ. But for these men, in this day, Jesus says, there's not going to be signs that are observed in these great cosmic sort of ways. They shouldn't be looking for these things. In fact, there's no one that's going to walk up to you, Pharisees, and say, hey, go look at that. Hey, look over here. Instead, Jesus says, verse 21, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, this, trans this verse, 21, has caused a lot of trees to be killed and ink spilled at trying to uh, explain what is talked about here in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching and Jesus' teaching even on the kingdom. Some translations have rendered verse 21 to say this, to say the kingdom of God is within you. And maybe your translation has that. That's a, uh, a, a reasonable one by the, the Greek that is there. But this translation that behold the kingdom of God is within you has been used to teach that Jesus is instructing them that the kingdom is an internal spiritual reality instead of a physical reality with a king on a physical throne upon this earth, exercising dominion over physical beings. But I believe that this translation and interpretation to say that the kingdom of God is exclusively and only this internal reality of a spiritual kingdom fails when we look at the context of the, when these comments were spoken. Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to the Pharisees. And so for Jesus to look these men in the eye and say the kingdom of God is within you doesn't make any sense. There is 
Jesus has already made it very clear that those who reject him, and in particularly the scribes and religious leaders, the Pharisees, are those who are not going to be welcomed and included in the kingdom, but instead they are going to be cast out of the kingdom. In fact, flip back to Luke chapter 13, a few, a few chapters back. Luke 13, verse 24. Well, verse, 20, verse 24 says, strive to enter through the narrow door, i.e., try, seek to be saved, seek to be included in the kingdom. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last." Jesus' point here is speaking to Israel, exemplified especially in the Pharisees and the scribes, is that because you have not believed in me, even though I was there in your streets, he says, performing miracles and doing many things, that even though I was there in your presence, you will not get access to the kingdom. In fact, you are the ones who will be cast out, he says. And there will be others that will be reclining at table in the kingdom of God, which is a a prophecy, an indication, a foreshadowing that this gospel is going to go to Gentiles, those who are not included in the nation of Israel, but like you and I, will be able to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So for Jesus to say that you yourselves, because you reject me, are cast out of the kingdom, and then for him to turn around back in Luke 17, verse 21, and say the kingdom of God is within you, I believe doesn't make any sense. It's also connected with that reality is the fact that in the New Testament, the kingdom is never spoken of as uh, something that enters inside of people. In other words, that people are urged or encouraged to pray for, for the kingdom to come inside of them or the kingdom to enter them. It's always spoken of, even as the passage we just saw, is that we people enter the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't enter us. It is a physical reality that is entered through a spiritual door, as my predecessor, Pastor David, would say. It's a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door. You must trust and believe in Jesus to have access to this future kingdom that will one day come. So the kingdom isn't like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters inside of us. We have the Spirit of God that comes inside of us, but the kingdom doesn't enter inside of us. It is a realm in which people are included and from which people can be excluded. Therefore, I believe that the translation uh, for Luke 7, or 17, 21, that the kingdom is in the midst of you is a better translation. How was the kingdom in the midst of the Pharisees? Well, it was there in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus the king, 
the messianic king who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies was there preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. I am the king. Repent and believe in me. He was the king. And if the nation would repent and believe the good news of the son of God's arrival who was there in their midst, then the kingdom would come in its fullness. He was the agent of God's plan. He was the agent of God's kingdom. If they wanted access to that kingdom, they needed to go through Jesus. They needed to go through him, and yet they stumbled over Christ. Jesus was standing directly in front of them, and yet they refused to believe in him. They refused to trust in him. He was the rock of offense. They took offense at him. They could not and would not repent and believe in this man. And it is in this blindness of the Pharisees that we see this lesson for us today. That there can be great truth that's revealed right in front of us. And yet, the blindness can continue. These Pharisees, they had no excuses. They should have they were learned in the Old Testament. They should know what would happen. They should know what the Messiah should do when he came. And yet, as Jesus repeatedly, time and again, graciously, mercifully, continued to show signs of his identity as the Son of God, they continued to stiff arm and to refuse him. And so Jesus gave him the, the critique in chapter 12, verse 54 50 through 56. He said, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? These people could not see that the king was in their midst. And that the calling upon their life was to repent and to believe in him. The Son of God was standing directly in front of them. But they refused to connect the dots. They didn't want those dots to connect. They didn't want Jesus to be king over them. They didn't want to be true that Jesus was the chosen one. And friends, isn't it true that even today people can respond in the same way? They hear the truth whether it be once or whether it be many times, and yet the same refusal can be upon their lips. They refuse to repent of their sins even though the message is clear, even though Jesus is clearly presented in the word of God. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want him to be king over them. People don't want to confess that they need to repent, that they are filled with unrighteousness, they don't want to acknowledge that it would be just for God to punish them for their sins because of their rebellion against their creator. And they don't want to bow their knee before Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. Jesus has made himself very clear in his word. The testimony about him has gone out through all the world, through the church over the last 2,000 years, and yet people continue to refuse to submit to Jesus. And Jesus made it clear in Luke chapter 13 that unless we repent, we will likewise perish ourselves. 
Friends, the same threat that came to the first century Jews is here for us today, that if we don't trust and believe in Jesus, that there is a very real punishment that awaits us because of our sin. Unless you likewise repent, you will likewise perish. The door of life and salvation, then and now, is Jesus Christ alone. It's a narrow door, as we read, but we're commanded to strive to enter it, to not seek for salvation or life anywhere else, but to look only and exclusively in him, to trust him alone, that it is through him and his sacrifice and his work that enables us to have access to heaven and the kingdom one day. We must surrender to Jesus. And so the lesson here is that we must not be spiritually blind like the Pharisees. Friends, we need to interpret our times, which means we need to know what God is doing in our day. You need to know what God is doing today and what he calls upon you at this very hour. It's summarized for us in Acts 17, where Paul says that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that man that will judge the world one day? It is the very king that we've been speaking of. It is Jesus Christ. He is the one who was died and was raised. He is the one who will return to judge this world and all those who have rejected him. But the good news of the kingdom is that you and I can be citizens of that kingdom today. We can be on his side. He has, is ex is extending his grace and mercy to all today, calling everywhere to repent and to receive and experience his mercy and grace. If you would but repent of your sin, lay down your arms against him and surrender and confess him as Lord. Indeed, God has been kind to you. The fact that you are sitting here today and your heart is beating and your lungs are breathing shows the kindness of the Lord in your life. And now he's offering his salvation to you if you'd repent and believe. Don't put it off for tomorrow. Don't presume that you will have it tomorrow, for we do not know what tomorrow will bring. You were made to live in the presence of God, and it has only made possible through Jesus Christ. So this text urges us to set our eyes on Christ and the first avenue of doing that was by learning from the Pharisees' blindness. But the second avenue, it urges this upon us, is to long for the Lord's presence. We are to set our eyes on Christ by, by longing for the Lord's presence. And we see this in verse 22. Look at it with me. It says, and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and, will not, and you will not see it. It's clear, verse 22, the audience changes. We, he was talking to the Pharisees, now he's talking to the disciples. He was talking to enemies, now he's talking to friends. And yet the topic remains the same. He continues to discuss the kingdom, but now the time frame is different. Rather than the present time, at the time of the events described here, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, now he's fast-forwarding to a future day. He's talking about a time when the disciples will not have Jesus presently in front of them, physically in front of them. He says, 
The days are coming. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man, it's an interesting uh, phrase to find. It is the beginning of the word day or days being used in this passage. In fact, the word day or days is used ten times in this passage. And here, particularly, as it talks about the days of the Son of Man, or the day of the Son of Man, it might be plural or singular here, it refers to the days of the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. This was a time when the Messiah would come and he would save the righteous, he would judge the wicked, and he would reign upon his throne in Zion. These would be the days in which Jesus, who is the Son of Man, would reign in victory and glory. And so Jesus here is preparing the disciples for a time when he will not be presently upon the earth. He's already done this in Luke chapter 5. In fact, you can flip there with me to Luke chapter 5. Early on, he made reference to the fact that he would not always be with them. Luke chapter 5, verse 33 and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. In other words, they don't fast. Why are they feasting? Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But look at verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You see the similarity with what we just saw in Luke 17? The days are coming. The days will come. And he says here, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, an illustration, a metaphor for his own presence. He, the bridegroom, will be taken away. Currently, at this time, he's there. He's present. And therefore, they're feasting. Because as, as, a, as a part of the announcement of the kingdom. But there's going to be a day he's going to be taken away. And in that day, they will fast. Which coincides with verse, Luke 17, verse 22. Going, flipping back there where he says that you will desire to see one of these days in which the Son of Man will be present again. The key factor is the presence of the bridegroom, the presence of the Son of Man. There's a time that he's here, there's a time that he's not here. Jesus is saying that things are different between the time when he's present and the time that he's absent. And so... This time that verse 22 speaks of is the time of our present day in which Jesus is not here physically. He's not here in bodily form. He has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And we await the day, we long for the day, we desire for the day when Jesus will return again in physical form. We can see him with our own eyes. He remains there until he returns. And Jesus has already spoken of his return in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, where he says, you mu also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, he's preparing his disciples. And so here in Luke 17, Jesus makes it clear that his return will initiate the prophetic events known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. If you read through the prophets of the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets, you'll see this phrase called the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. This day is, does not just refer to the singular 24-hour day in which Christ returns, but refers to a period of time of end-time cataclysmic events. 
But Jesus' return is a thing that will set it all off and will be surrounding it, and he will be the central figure, which is why it's called the day or the days of the Son of Man here. But what we must also realize is that this day is, has to include Christ himself. These are the days of the Son of Man. Everything revolves around his presence. And so when he returns is when the kingdom will return again. He offered it to Israel there in the first century. They rejected him. And so his messianic kingdom was not established then, but it will be established when he returns. And he sets his foot upon the Mount of Olives and he comes to bring his presence back to this earth. Of course, the disciples knew what it was like to have Jesus with them. They walked with him for three and a half years. They knew what it was like to have the days of the Son of Man. And Jesus tells them here, you're going to desire for those days again. You're going to desire to have his pres my presence with you again. Of course, Jesus is with us, as I started our ser our, the sermon time here with, that Jesus does abide with his people through his spirit. But we await his return in body. And this bodily return is made clear in Acts chapter 1 where it says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return in the clouds just as he was ascended into the clouds. He will return in the same way he went. But the point of verse, Luke 17, verse 22, is that, that, that I want us to see this morning, is that Jesus indicates that it's characteristic of his disciples to desire to see Jesus again. It's characteristic of Jesus' followers to desire to see him. The word here for desire is the Greek word epithumia. It's typically translated in the Bible as desire or strong desire or sometimes lust. Whenever it talks about the sin of lust, this idea of strong sexual immoral desire, it uses this word epithumia. And so it's speaking of a strong longing, a strong desire. In this case, it's longing and desiring to see Christ. And Jesus commends it. It's a time that you're going to want to see him but you won't. Now this longing for Christ that's to be found in followers of Christ is found in other passages of the Bible as well. Uh, Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says that the church is waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
You see that? Jesus appeared once to deal with sin. He's going to come back a second time. This time he doesn't have to deal with sin. He already did that. This second time he's coming to save those. And what characterizes those whom he's saving? It's those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly longing. Eagerly waiting to see the Lord. And so the question for us this morning is, do we long for Jesus' return? Do we have a strong desire that Jesus talks about here to see Jesus face to face? Friends, if that desire is weak, if you haven't even thought about that, I encourage you to seek to increase that desire in your heart, to get a better portrait of who Jesus is, that you might long for him, not just for the benefits that he brings, but for Christ alone. Indeed, we long for him to come and save us from this fallen world. We want him to come and make things right. But more than anything, we must want him. John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, asked the penetrating question. He says, would you want to go to heaven if you had all of the benefits that are listed there? There's no sin, there's no death, there's no suffering, there's no pain. There's, everything is immaculate in paradise and awesome, but Jesus isn't there. Would you still want to go? And it helps us to evaluate our own hearts to say, do I really want Jesus or am I just wanting all the benefits that he brings? But Jesus says of his people, they are going to long for the day in which they could see him. And so we must work at weakening our love for this world and increase our love for Christ. There should be a holy discontent with this life, holy discontent with what's our life here and recognize that we want Jesus, we want him to return, and we want his presence more than anything else. So the question for us this morning is, does Christ's church desire for him to return? I pray that it, we do. But let's look at the third avenue that we're urged to uh, set our eyes upon Christ in this text. And that is that it urges us to look to the king's return. It urges us to look to the king's return. In one sense, already inching this direction, but we see it more in verses 23 through 24. Jesus says, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Here in this ver these verses, Jesus begins to describe his return to earth. First of all, he says that there will be people who have claimed to have seen the Son of Man when it's not true that they have. They will make false claims. They will call out to others to come and see. But Jesus exhorts people to not believe them. Do not go out or follow them. The scenario here, here is someone somewhere claims to be the Messiah, claims to have returned and people are evangelists for that man and say, hey, come, come and see the Messiah. Come, he's returned. He's, he's back. Marketers, as it were, to announce that he's arrived. But Jesus says, you don't need to believe these claims because listen, when, when I return, I don't need a marketing department. I don't need someone to go out and do advertising for me. It's gonna be extremely clear when I return. It's gonna come with such spe spectacular signs that no one's going to miss it. Notice the illustration he uses in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now I've got an image of, of lightning flashing through the, 
the sky. In particular, Jesus is talking about lightning that goes from one side of the sky to the other. It's, it's within the clouds. Not, you know, we typically see lightning that goes to the ground, but there's some of this lightning that goes from cloud to cloud. The point is, is that this kind of lightning that lights up the sky is seen by all around. It cannot be missed. It dominates the whole region. It doesn't appear in a small corner somewhere that people then have to say, hey, come and look at this. It just bursts on the scene and enables every, announces its arrival to everybody. And so Jesus then says that his coming will be like lightning. What does this mean? One commentator helpfully describes it this way. He says, like lightning, the son of man's arrival will be sudden, eye-catching, glorious, frightening, and celestial. It's going to appear in the sky. It's going to be sudden. It's going to grab attention. It's going to be absolutely glorious, and it's going to be frightening, depending on the position of the person watching. But notice that the very last words of verse 24, it says, when Jesus returns... It says, so will the Son of Man be in his day, in the day of the Son of Man. Another reference to his day. It'll be the day of the Lord, as we said. It'll be this time in which Christ is returning to judge and to save. And as we said, it's the day of salvation for his saints. He's coming a second time to save those who are eagerly awaiting him, as the Hebrews 9 says. And so we're to long for his presence, friends. We're to look for him to come back for us. We are to look forward to his return. Because, last point, we're to long for him, so we can look forward to the reunion. We look forward to the day that we know he will come back. And Paul describes this reunion in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, that is the great hope of the church. This is what we believed to be the rapture of the church in which the church will be taken from this life. For all those who are alive at the time of Christ's return, they will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air and they will be instantly changed as 1 Corinthians 15 says. This is the first event of that time known as the day of the Lord. And Paul explicitly says that the church is to be encouraged with this reunion, recognizing that we will one day meet the Lord and always be with the Lord. This is to encourage, to strengthen our hearts, to give courage to us, to live in this day that there is a reunion coming when Christ will come back for his own. He has not forgotten about us. He has not forsaken us. He will come to bring us to himself. And aren't these the words of the foundation of our hope? that we will one day always be with the Lord, that that presence that we long for will never be taken away from us once we see him again. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the king's return? It might be today. It might be tonight. It might be tomorrow. Are you ready? Are you looking to his return? Are you setting your 
eyes upon Christ. Let's look forth and finally this morning at the way this, the avenue that this passage urges us to set our eyes on Christ by fourthly lingering on the Savior's suffering. Lingering on the Savior's suffering. Verse 25, look at it with me. But first, he, the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about his return or the end times and he inserts a reference to the cross. He talks about in other places, but in particular, this is the only place where he's talking about end times or his return and he talks about the cross. And it, it kind of brings the perspective back Yes, that great day when he's going to arrive and it's going to be like lightning and, and you can't miss it. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. There could be excitement by the disciples thinking about that future day when he'll bring justice to the earth. But Jesus then reminds them that the crown will not come before the cross. The glory will not come before the suffering. In fact, it says that Jesus must suffer. You see that word must in the verse? That is a, a distinctive uh, verb in the Greek that describes the necessity of this happening. This must take place. Must according to whom? Well, it's must according to God. Upon God's timetable and God's schedule, this return can't happen unless Jesus first suffers many things. It is a necessity by the command of God that the cross must take place. Friends, God is sovereignly in control of history. Even though the Israel rejected their Messiah and put him upon the cross, it was all according to his foreordained plan. He is the, deter the one who determines the what and the when. But notice that Jesus didn't just suffer one thing. He or some things, he suffered many things. What are some of those things? He, he suffered many physical things. The beatings, the crown of thorns upon his head, the, the flogging and the lacerations upon his back, the nails in his hands and his feet, the asphyxiation as he hung upon the cross. But he also suffered more than just physical. He, he suffered many emotional and relational pains as well. You think of the mockery from the soldiers spitting upon him. The derision from the chief priests and the scribes. The abandonment by his closest friends, the disciples. And as this verse says, he was rejected by that generation, by his own people. The people that he came to love and to serve. He was rejected. The whole nation rejected. The whole generation but most of all, as we see in the gospel accounts, he felt abandoned by the Father himself in a way that we can't even explain, in the way that our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is, is, cannot be ruptured. And yet Jesus there upon the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt this forsakenness because the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus who knew no sin, was made sin on our behalf there upon the cross. 
As he himself bore our sin upon the tree, he consumed the wrath of God on our behalf, the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us and for us to be utterly destroyed for all of eternity. Jesus stood there upon the cross and he took that wrath for us. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so, friends, we are reminded here in the midst of an exhortation to look to the end of days, to remember that why can we look to those end of days with hope? Why can the church not look with great fear upon the return of the judge? Because we know that on that day, we will not experience the wrath of God for our sin because there was one who took that wrath for us. Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross so that we will not have to experience that wrath. He took it for us. And so the the second coming of Christ is only good news to those who have trusted in Jesus today and believe that he took that wrath for us today. Have our sin dealt with today because in that day it'll be too late. Our sin stood between us and our creator, but Jesus paid it all. He suffered for us. We must linger and look upon our suffering Savior and see all that he has done for his people. We must bow in worship. We must cry out in gratitude because, friends, there is no other way for us to be saved. There was no other way for us to be brought into fellowship with God. There was no other way for us to experience that for which we were created for. There was no way back to the garden but through Jesus Christ himself. And for that, we praise him. And so as we wait for the kingdom to arrive, Let us set our eyes upon Christ the King and trust in him today. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and the privilege we have to look at your word and to see that there is a way for us to escape the wrath that we deserve. That we have a way that we can have, we can be saved from the punishment that we have racked up. And Father, I pray for us as your church that you would help us to wait with great expectation, that you would help us to desire to see the Lord, that we would long for his presence, that we would look forward to the reunion that is coming one day and might even be today. We thank you For this exhortation, Father, may you help us to set our eyes upon your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.